Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of the Raw Prospect Podcast. We appreciate you listening. This is episode 173. Today we're going to be doing some NBA talk, off-season talk. Uh, Damian Lillard has requested a trade, uh, something that we've been anticipating for quite a while now. We'll get into that. Uh, and then we're going to get into some CBA stuff with uh, the new agreement between the NBA Players Association and the NBA. It has some interesting clauses, has some interesting implications. We'll get into that, that discussion. And then for the third segment, we'll circle back to the Bradley Beal trade from a few weeks ago. But like and subscribe to the channel. We're going to be doing more NBA content. We're going to have an NFL episode here pretty soon. Stay tuned for that. Um, and if you haven't already, go check out our latest live stream of the, of the Deep in the Long Deep in the Heart of Longhorns podcast. That's a whole tongue tongue twister. Uh, if you haven't already, go check that out. We just released that um, right before we recorded this. But before we get into it, joining me as always from Austin, Texas, the Stack King himself, Michael Ween. How you doing? What's up, everybody? Doing well. Just recorded a great conversation on a live stream talking about Texas football as we near two months out from the college football season in about three weeks from fall camp. But today we're here to talk about the NBA because the NBA is just flat out crazy and a little bit nutty. And we're going to start by talking about this wild trade request. That, you know, was, I think, at this at some point in the past year or so, it was not if, but eventually when. Um, and I think we have to start by talking about not only will Damian Lillard get his wish to go to the Miami Heat and what the Heat can offer and sort of the intricacies of that in, that dynamic, but also... Sort of the timing of his trade request. I found the timing of his request after free agency had already started to be a little weird um, with that meeting with the front office to requesting the trade, you know, I think 24 or 48 hours later. I just found the timing to be a little bit off. I thought it would have come a little bit earlier, but, you know, there are other factors in play here. So, Let's just start by talking about, do you think Damian Lillard will ultimately get his wish to go to the Miami Heat? Well. Or take it wherever you want to take it. Yeah. I Ultimately, I think he will, but there's a lot that goes into it as well. Um, there's two years left on his contract, and I think ultimately – these other teams that are in play, particularly the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers that have been mentioned, if he ends up on those teams, I think Damian Lillard is not the type of player to just hold out and be like, no, I'm not going to play for y'all. Um, this guy is a hooper through and through. He's not with the drama. We've seen it uh, throughout his career. Um, and ultimately, you know, he is against super teams, and I think that plays a part in him wanting to go to Miami and team up with Jimmy Butler, just in the fact that um, the Heat culture and what they've built there. Uh, but no matter the case, I think if he did end up in Boston, 
for example, I think he would play. Um, so part of my thinking here is this, I will only play for the Miami Heat uh, discussion from Damian Lillard's camp, I think is a leverage play. Um, and obviously Portland, it puts Portland in a tough spot, definitely, because uh, from a Miami standpoint, they're like, okay, y'all are desperate to get a deal done with us um, because your guy only wants to come with, to us. But the problem with him saying, okay, only one, I only want to go to one team is, you know, obviously Damian Lewis has been loyal to that franchise, but you also have to take into account that the franchise has been loyal to him as well. They've paid him millions upon millions of dollars, kept him around, and honestly could have traded him two years ago for more than what they will get right now. Um, so no matter the case, I think Portland has to do what's right for their franchise. And it's going to be interesting to see how this thing plays out. But if I were to guess right now, I think Portland might crack and just be like, okay, we'll, we'll send you to the heat. It's hard to tell. I mean, I hear different things every day. Let's first start. I want to first point out that you're right. The organization has been very loyal to Damian Lillard. But I think that's in part because Damian Lillard has been so loyal to them. It goes both ways. You're absolutely right about that. And there is blame to be put on both sides for not only how this situation has ended up now, but for the years past of, let's just say, mostly mediocrity. NBA purgatory, so to speak, for that. There's blame that goes both ways. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Portland should have seen it coming a couple of years ago and traded him two or three years ago when they could have cooped more value for him. Although, when you look at Lillard, he's still performing at an incredibly high level, averaged over 30 points per game last year on 64% true shooting percentage, close to 65%. I mean, what, he's a seven- or eight-time All-Star in his 11 seasons. He's named to the NBA 75 team, so he's one of the, considered one of the 75 greatest players of all time. He's one of the elite shooters in our game. Still a very, very damn good player, All-Star caliber player. He's got four years left of control on his deal at $216 million, which at the age of 32 – there's conversations to be had there, but he's still, as I mentioned, there's reason to believe he still has at least a couple good years left of all-star caliber play on the right team, right? His play on the court is not an issue, although he, he's had some injuries the past couple of years, but that's stuff out of really the team's involved control. I think that when you look at what the Heat can give, and you, I think you brought it up with Tyler Hero. Hold on, I have it right here. Um, I mean, you're looking at Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, Nikola Jovic, and two picks. 
uh, possibly. Maybe there's something else if you get a third team involved, which I think right. is the way that would have to happen. If a trade's going to happen with the Heat and the Blazers, I think they're going to have to somehow, some way, get a third team involved to suit the best interests of both the Blazers, the Heat, um, in this trade. But I think just looking at the trade that's on the table right now that we're talking about in this context, it's a bad trade because if you're Portland, you're not getting a big lump of draft picks like the Nets got for Kevin Durant or the Jazz did for Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert. And you're really not getting any key young players like the Pelicans got for Anthony Davis or the Thunder got for Paul George. Or sorry, yeah, Thunder got for Paul George. You're not really getting the assets that you want. And if Portland, as you said, wants to build the best roster for Damian Lillard's successor, Scoot Henderson, who they just drafted this past June, and build around what they have to build towards something of meaning in the future, they will not cave. They will find a way, whether that's getting a third team involved or going to another team because Dane does not have, although he does have some leverage and say, I want to go to Miami. He doesn't have that no trade clause where he can just veto any trade. The Portland Trailblazers, if they're smart, are going to get the best possible value for him. Now, I think you maybe see in a month or two, if this thing is still going on, you maybe see Portland, you know, take their hit, make the trade with Miami, just make Dame happy and get get on with this thing as maybe training camp comes closer. But I think if you're Portland, you got to do whatever you can to get a third team involved, whoever that might be. I think about the Nets. Um, maybe, maybe even the Thunder. Maybe even the Thunder. I think Portland could potentially be interested in like a Ben Simmons who has two years left on his contract and could give them some of the things that they don't currently have at least. Uh, now, I'm not saying that has to happen or that's, you know, that's even on the table. But just as an example for what we're talking about here, I think a third team has to get involved. Those are just some of the teams that come to mind. Or he's going to end up somewhere else uh, where Portland can coot more value. That's my prediction. But Portland has not always been the most shrewd of organizations, most flexible of organizations. And we'll see where this ends up because – if they take the offer that's on the table right now from the Miami Heat, it's going to go down as a bad, a really bad trade in my opinion. Um, Tyler Hero is a guy who has really been mostly a dud in the playoffs, and I think he's sort of redundant with what the Blazers already have with Scoot Henderson, a smaller guard that doesn't give you much defensively. I mean, you've tried that over and over with the past teams, CJ McCollum, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on about roster construction. Um, I just – I don't think Miami 
really has what Portland wants. And not only that, I'm not really sure um, that it makes sense for either side. Um, but that's, I mean, I could go on and on about it. So that's sort of where I stand right now. Um, you have anything to add? Um, the one other thing I want to address is the rebuttal to what I said earlier with the loyalty going both ways is, okay, well, Portland can use uh, Damian Lillard going to the team he wanted as leverage for future players. But that that doesn't really make much sense with the fact that, okay, you're basically saying, okay, player A, remember that time when we sent Damian Lillard to the team he wanted? If you come here, we'll send you to the team you want if you request a trade. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so <laughs> to that rebuttal, just throw that throw that away, man, because it, it's pretty clear here. The loyalty goes both ways, and Portland has to stay true to we got to build the best roster we can. We can't just settle. Right. I totally agree with that. And look. I hear what Miami feet Miami Heat fans are going to say. Um, you know, Tyler Hero, we get it. He's still 23, relatively young player. He's averaged over 20 points in consecutive seasons. But in my opinion, it doesn't really make sense if you're Portland because he's mostly a liability on the defensive end of the floor. Ever since the bubble, he's been sort of a dud offensively in the playoffs. He's owed $120 million over the next four seasons. And in my opinion, the Blazers just don't need another score-first guard in that backcourt who plays iffy defense when you already have Scoot Henderson, when you already have Anthony Simons, when you already have Shaden Sharp. Um. To me, that just that dynamic in itself doesn't make much sense. And we're not even mentioning the fact that you're not getting much else beyond Hero. Um, so I'm not sure the trade to Miami makes a whole lot of I mean, I get why Damian Lillard wants to go there. And we've mentioned that. But I don't know if it makes much sense on either side. Um does Dame – let's answer this question. Obviously, the Heat were really close to getting to the finals. Um, they've been on the brink, you know, two of the past five years of actually winning a championship. Um, and that's without adding a guy, the level of Damian Lillard's talent. Does a trade to Miami – Considering what we know now, and that Max Struess is gone, Gabe Vincent is gone, some of those role players are out, does a trade to Miami elevate the heat to we can win a championship, in your opinion? I think it certainly elevates them within the conversation, absolutely. Um, The thing that I've said a lot with Miami is, Jimmy Butler, as good as he is as a on-ball creator and just a offensive initiator in general, they need another guy. And the idea is that you put Damian Lillard in there, you 
immediately put the scoring pressure off of Jimmy Butler that much more. And Jimmy Butler is fantastic off the ball as well. Those little cuts to the basket, getting positioning early in the post. He is just an extremely crafty player. And I honestly think he's better suited um, scoring from off the ball, like creating scoring opportunities from off the ball anyway. So adding in Damian Lillard, you're not only adding a go-to guy late in the game um, other than Jimmy Butler, but you're also just elevating the ceiling of your offense to a whole different level. The defensive side of things, I'm not worried about because Eric Spolstra, we know how good of a coach he is. He will figure it out. Um, that zone that they run, I mean, you could argue that most of the guys they had in the lineup when they were running that zone aren't plus defenders on an individual level, but within that system, within that team defense, were more than adequate. So that part of the equation, I think, isn't as much of a factor if he does end up on the heat. Okay. Well, I agree for the most part. We need to wrap this conversation up and move on to the next um, segment. But I will say I do agree it elevates them within the conversation of getting out of the Eastern Conference. Right. I think you definitely have a lot more of a chance to get out of the Eastern Conference adding in a guy the level of Damian Lillard's talent, one of the probably when it's all said and done, like a top 60 player, top 50 player all time. The way we've seen Dame perform in the playoffs, the way we've seen Jimmy Butler perform in the playoffs, I think taking some of that pressure off of Butler, like you said, adding in Dame, who's had, he is the go-to guy late. In playoff games, he has that experience with Bam Adebayo and this coaching staff. It certainly gives you more of a chance. Now, there's more to just than as we've learned. There's more to making a championship run than just having those guys. Right. Um, but as we've learned with Eric Spolstra, who I think is bar none the best coach in basketball right now. There's really no argument in my opinion. Um, and with Jimmy Butler and Damian Lillard, two of the better playoff performers of the past decade, yes, uh, with the third star in Bam Adebayo, it does give them a chance. We'll talk more about free agency moves that both teams have made and so forth as we progress uh, in this NBA offseason. But with that all being said... Let's move on to our next segment where we're going to talk about the new CBA. Now, the new CBA was just put in place. It was agreed to a month or two ago, and it just took effect on on July 1st. So it's been in effect here for about a week, uh, and there are some different aspects that we want to talk about. Where do you want to start? You want to start with the second apron? The in-season tournament, which I believe they're releasing details for that uh, this weekend. 
And, and there's also an awards conversation to have. Where do you want to start this conversation? I'll let you take it where you want. I think let's start off with the second apron okay. because that's what we've been seeing affect free agency and affect some of these moves that teams have had to make. Um, essentially, the second apron is the additional ceiling to uh, salary to keep teams from going that much further over the salary cap and that much deeper into luxury tax. It's essentially a anti warriors type of rule. Um, but there's a bunch of rules that keep those teams from signing, say a, uh, mid-level exception player they won't be able to do that if they pass that second apron um so they'll specifically be limited to veteran minimums throughout the throughout their roster throughout the back end of their roster which then would put them at a disadvantage of course so teams are going to be encouraged and they're going to be motivated to one avoid it and two if they're in it, get out of it as soon as possible. So uh, we've seen teams like the Hawks who were frighteningly close to it, despite being a mediocre team this past year. We saw the Hawks move players to get away from it, particularly John Collins. Um, and we're already seeing teams with those $20 million to $15 million contracts for mid-level role players send those deals off to other teams that can take those contracts so that they can have a little bit more flexibility and not touch that second apron. Yeah. To me, it all see, I kind of, it's not exactly the same, but I kind of liken it to the installments that were put in place for major league baseball. Um, last year when they had their collective bargaining agreement uh, deal negotiated and put into place. Um, the talk in baseball has been a lot about the luxury tax and teams that go way over the luxury tax threshold, which is a simple, which is simply put a salary cap, like a, a soft ceiling since they don't have a salary cap in baseball. Uh, but like a soft salary ceiling uh, that, you know, there are heavy penalties for teams that go way over the spending limit of that luxury tax threshold. And that sort of, as we've seen this year in particular, encouraged some of the smaller market teams in baseball to spend in, to spend a little more and be more aggressive um, as they've increased the salary floor and, essentially um, made like a soft salary ceiling, if you will, with a luxury test, a luxury tax threshold, excuse me, that penalizes teams for going so much above that. I think it's sort of similar with what the NBA has put in place, but there's a lot to keep in mind here. First of all, just for the ca the more casual fans out there, in the NBA, as we know, there is a salary cap. Everyone knows that. Right now, it's set at $136 million. And basically, that's the amount of money 
that every team has available to spend on their roster. And I believe starting this year, every team has to hit that salary floor. Um, they have to have at least $136 million on allocated on their roster. Now, what you see is most teams uh, use what are called salary cap exceptions to go over the limit without being, I guess, penalized. But right. then there's also, as I was talking about in baseball, a luxury tax line. And basically, in the NBA, the luxury tax line is $165 million. And teams that go over that acquire um, financial penalties. Uh, they're required to play a, pay a tax depending on how much they go over the $165 million threshold for that luxury tax line. Most teams right now in the NBA, if I'm guessing, are trying to stay between the salary cap and that luxury tax line, between the $136 million and the $165 million. But some of these higher-level teams with multiple stars that are on these max contracts and stuff are going above that, and you do hit a first apron, which starts at – 172 million. So when a team exceeds 172 million 172 million dollars, there are restrictions that are triggered. Um and you can go read this all online, but basically teams that go over that 172 million dollar limit, for example, I won't read them all, but those teams cannot acquire a player in a sign in trade if the player that they are acquiring um, keeps them above the first apron. Um, so that's just one of the restrictions that's triggered if you hit that first apron. And then there's the second apron, which, as Amy mentioned, is at $182.5 million, And there are a bunch more penalties and restrictions that are applied once a team hits the second apron. Now, for this season alone, for this upcoming season, the 2023 2024 season one additional penalty is going to be added uh for teams that cross the second apron and additional ones will be all the additional ones will be implemented the next the next year um basically the one that's being implemented this year is teams that go over that second apron the 182.5 million dollars won't have access to their $5 million taxpayer mid-level exception, as you said. But the next year is when it really kicks in. And I sort of like that they are taking more of a slow, conservative approach to implementing these restrictions. That's the main thing I kind of wanted to say. Um, but next year, following the end of this season, more restrictions will be added to the second apron. Um some of which include teams that go over cannot include cash in a trade. Teams cannot use a trade a, trade exception. Um, first round picks seven years out are frozen and unable to be traded if you go over the the second apron. Uh, the list goes on and on. So bottom line is you don't really want to go over the first apron, uh, but I think more teams than you probably think are willing to do that. But starting really 
2024-2025, you're really not going to want to go over the second apron. And if you are over the second apron, you're going to want to get it out of that situation as fast as you can because of it really limits you in terms of flexibility and what you can do with your roster from a roster building standpoint um, in the off season. If you're, especially if you're a team, you know, trying to elevate yourself into either playoff contention and solidify yourself as a playoff team or a team that's really trying to get to that next level of being in the championship conversation. So I just kind of see it as in a similar way to baseball as sort of a a competitive balance rule that's going to help with spending not only on the higher end and limiting what some of those teams can do in, I guess, accessing the amount of power that they have, but also helping teams that really haven't been all that aggressive, just evening the play, the playing field a little bit in the off season is what I'm trying to say. That's right. kind of where I see it going. Uh, but uh, with that being said, I guess we can uh, transition the conversation. Yeah. yeah I, um, the one thing I'll, I'll correct you on is I think the floor – for spending is 90% of that cap. So it's okay. not quite 136 million. I think it's around 125 million. But that that is why you saw a team like the Rockets go out and spend, spend, spend. Um, they signed Fred Van Vliet to a huge contract. Dylan Brooks, over $80 million, I believe. Um, so we're already seeing the effects of these rules start to take shape. And the next domino to fall is a little bit of what I alluded to earlier. It's those mid-level contracts that were bloated before now because teams were able to do so are now going to be a little bit more modest. Yeah. So with that being said, let's talk about what has been a big talking point since this CBA has been negotiated, and that's the end-season tournament that is being implemented this upcoming season, where they, I believe, announced a couple of days ago that they're going to host the final four of this new end-season tournament. That's going to take place um, December 7th and 9th in Las Vegas. Now, I don't know the intricacies of how this end-season tournament is going to work, but it is going to deb- debut this season. Um, and I think all teams will participate in what will be a group stage, which will consist of six groups total, three per conference, three groups per conference, and chosen by a random draw based on the team's winning percentage the previous year. Each team will play four games in its group stage with the six group winners making it to the knockout stage along with two wild cards who finish with the best winning percentage and not first in their groups. Knockout stage games will be single elimination through the final. Um, And that's really all I can gather 
for the details of the in-season tournament. Your thoughts and opinions on the in-season tournament that is being implemented this upcoming season. Well, for one, I think it solves a lot of issues right off the bat. For one, I'm going to go on the record and say the offseason, particularly right at the start of free agency and most of the draft season as well, is more entertaining than the November and December months of the NBA season because those are just the just the monotonous ups and downs of just oh our team is trying to figure out who they are and yada 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 and and there's just not a lot of interest during those months of the NBA season and a lot of times people even say the NBA season doesn't really start until February somewhere in there that's when teams really start to pick it up in terms of their intensity so from that aspect you gain a little bit more interest than what would have been there before which is a win um number two i think being progressive in terms of looking at other leagues around the world and seeing what you can take off of them is smart process whether this works out or not you know this was taken this was plucked straight out of european football uh soccer is what we call it here but um English Premier League, all those leagues have their little in-season tournaments, and those have become extremely successful there. Um, So whether this works out or not, I think it's good process to try something like this. Um, And then number three is I think this is an easy way to implement rivalries back into the NBA. Um, so much of the last few years has been rivalries are dead. Um, like why are rivalries just dead all of a sudden? Um, we saw a little bit of, okay, the Pelicans and the Suns, okay, they're drawing back and forth. Okay, cool. But that didn't really end up meaning anything. But now with this, there's going to be some sort of in-season rivalries playing out, and that's a huge win in my opinion. Yeah, I I like the progressive part the most um, in terms of implementing this in-season tournament. And I think when you look at not only the American sports landscape, but also if you go across seas and you look at what's happening right now in European soccer, you can see a lot of similar things going on. Um, now the closest thing you're going to see is obviously what the WNBA has and they hold what's called an in-season commissioner's cup competition, which basically designates certain regular season games, which count towards a commission, which count towards commissioner cup standings. And that's really the most direct American sports comparison that you're going to find is what the, to what the W or to what the NBA is undertaking here with the end season tournament. But I mean, you have seen European soccer and basketball leagues across seas pit their top teams against each other uh, for a mid season prize. And I think it's going to encourage guys to play more 
in those early season games because it's going to count for – not that it doesn't count for something already. It obviously does. But it's going to give them more of an incentive to play, especially considering that the winner of this tournament, players on that team get a financial prize in addition to their salary. Um, and as you said, it's going to incur, it's going to bring back some rivalries, which will be good for the NBA. It'll be good for popularity, and it's going to raise the level of interest in the NBA in the months of October when it starts around that October twentieth date through January. That's really where I see the lack of interest in the NBA. And you kind of see it with baseball as well. I mean, April, May, early June are often like, okay, we'll just kind of keep an eye on the standings, but we're not really going to watch any games until really the all-star break in baseball. And that's sort of the same way with the NBA. Most of the fans I talk to really don't get interested in the NBA until the all-star break and until the trading deadline. Those are like the two marks in American sports where you know interest really ramps up, especially for these sports with longer seasons like the NBA and the MLB. Um, with the NFL and football, it's a lot different. But um, yeah, I think all, all the points that you brought up are absolutely valid. I think we could see um, an uptick and I guess how do I say this? Players actually playing more games in the uh, early parts of the season, given that all teams are going to be given a chance to participate in this in-season tournament, at least from a group stage standpoint. Uh, I'm not sure what I think about the fact that the groups are going to be randomly drawn based on the winning percentage of last season standings. But I guess that's really the only way you can do it, considering this tournament is going to take place relatively early in this season. Um, But, yeah, I mean, look, things aren't going to be perfect, but I like the fact that the NBA is doing stuff. Like, we've sort of seen it in baseball, and I know I'm – I know I'm comparing a lot to baseball, but the only reason is because they're the only other league that's really negotiated a big CBA in the past couple years. So that's the really only thing I have to compare. And they've done a lot of similar things with their rules and stuff that have made the game better and the overall product better. And when we talk about the NFL, the NFL is like, made for TV, like start to finish. I mean, even now you got, you got a lot of people watching the preseason because, you know, there's so many storylines with rookies and this and that. And I know there's been an uptick in interest in the summer league um, with all this G league stuff and all of that. But really in the NBA, the, the amount of interest that you see early on in the season, same thing with the Major League Baseball, just really pales in comparison. It's really nothing compared to what you see in football. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing. It's just 
try you're never going to be what I don't think no American sports league and I'll finish with this is going to ever be or reach the levels that the NFL has reached but you can do your best to increase popularity and to please your fans and I think the NBA is doing a good job with that in their action that they've taken in negotiating this new CBA, both the players and the owners um, and whoever else is involved. So applause to the NBA on that part. Um, But that being said, we can talk about the last aspect of this that we wanted to talk about. And look, there's plenty more to address Um, and if we need, we can do another episode, uh, to finish talking about the CBA along with some free agency stuff. So do you want to address awards now or just move on to the Bradley Beal trade since we're already 40 ish minutes in? It's up to you. Um, I think, I think maybe we should move on to the Bradley Beal trade, but I'll just finish this mid season tournament conversation with this. I've seen a lot of negativity around it and, you know, people saying like, oh, this is whack. This is going to be so dumb. This stuff works, guys. I mean, you look at the English Premier League season. It goes from August to May. That is insanity. Um, Obviously, there's breaks in between with like international play and players having uh, their international obligations playing for their countries. But. Even so, that long of a season, if you think the Premier League hasn't had the same inchi- the, the same issues with interest, then you're naive. Um, they have, and they've addressed those things with these midseason tournaments that they have. So whether this works or not, like I said, this something like this had to be done. Right, and when you think about the early – I think a big reason why – NBA fan or the NBA doesn't get as much attention early on in their seasons because when you think about the timeline, mid October through December, that's important football that's being played at both the college level and the obviously the NFL. So I think that plays a part, but I think if you're the NBA, you're just doing everything you can to increase popularity for your league early on in the season. Whatever you can get, whatever attention you can get, whether or not you're stealing that from the NFL, which you're probably never going to do, but if you can just increase popularity amongst your own fans early on in the season and make it as much of a palatable early season product for TV as possible, that's what you got to do. And I applaud the NBA for trying. So with that being said, we'll move on to a trade that happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, Maybe even more than that. I can't remember exactly when it happened, Um, but it's at least a couple weeks ago. Now Bradley Beal being traded to the Suns. Do you have the details of the trade just so we can be reminded? If not, I can get them. Um, Um, I was actually going to get them up right now, but um, since you're going to do it, I'll I'll start off with the main gist of what I'm going to say. For me, the Bradley Beal trade, it can be summed up in three words. 
new owner syndrome. It is a real disease, people. Uh, Matt Ispia bought the Suns here recently. I think it was during the season. And what did he do right away? Traded for Kevin Durant. Obviously, he didn't directly do that. It was in tandem with, obviously, their GM. Uh, I believe it's uh, James Jones, I think. Uh, But no matter the case, traded for Kevin Durant, made a big splash. And then, obviously, they get bounced in the second round. And offseason hits, they make the move for Bradley Beal. Now, from a basketball standpoint, it feels a little bit clunky, but I think offensively they are going to be dynamic. There's no question about it. Um, people forget how good Bradley Beal is moving off the ball. He came into the league as a off-ball shooter, played with John Wall, is used to coming off of floppy screens and pulling up from pulling up off the catch uh, in those movement situations, and that'll fit in well with this group. Um, on top of that, I think there's a mesh that can happen between, you know, Devin Booker and Bradley Beal, um, where the ball handling duties, you know, having Kevin Durant play that pick and pop game with either of them. I think that's going to be extremely interesting. And the thing that, I'm going to be looking at with the Suns this next year. It's not going to be that big three. The The big three has already established themselves. I think their on-court work offensively is going to be fantastic. The questions all lie on the defensive end. And that goes without saying, obviously, when you bring in a guy like Bradley Beal. But even last year, it just felt extremely limited um, with, you know, just the perimeter defenders that they had on the roster. It just didn't fit that well with what they had. Um, they've already brought in Eric Gordon. They've already made some small moves around the edges of the roster. But more than anything, they just need perimeter defense and some just some 3 and D, just energy play. Um no matter what form it comes in, they just they need that. Right. I look, you get a player like Bradley Beal, great. You basically what the Suns did here, and from my point of view, they acquired Bradley Beal in exchange for two guards they I'm not gonna say didn't want anymore, but I guess, or we're ready to move on from. Um, and by the way, before I say anything, I'll mention the terms of the trade. Um, the Suns got Bradley Beal, Jordan Goodwin, and Isaiah Todd. The Wizards received, of course, Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, uh, six second-round picks, and four pick swaps. Um, so those were the terms of the trade. I'm not going to go into the whole, how the draft picks work and how all the cap stuff works. But – Basically, what the Suns did is they got Bradley Beal in exchange for two guards. Um, from a basketball standpoint, I think it can work, especially on the offensive end. Um, I do think Devin Booker and Bradley Beal can co 
coexist in the backcourt. Um, you mentioned, you know, some of the aspects of Bradley Beal's game moving off the ball and so forth. He's also a fairly underrated playmaker, in my opinion. He's averaged five and a half assists over the last five seasons put together. That's his assist average. And he's a guy that, if you look at his assist-to-turnover ratio, doesn't turn the ball over all that much. Uh, Same thing with Devin Booker. Uh, He's become more of an underrated, willing playmaker the past couple of years. And I think with Kevin Durant, both those guys can operate in the pick and roll, pick and pop. Uh, And I think Devin Booker can ultimately take over as the lead guard on this team. Um, As I mentioned, both are exceptional scorers. Both are fairly willing playmakers uh, who take relatively good care of the basketball. Um, So that's the first thing. I think it can work offensively. I can see how, as you mentioned, this thing will mesh together. I think it'll be okay. Um, A lot of the... The conversation we wanted to have is obviously the standard right now in the West is the Denver Nuggets. They are the best team. They just won the championship. Have the Suns closed the gap on the Denver Nuggets? And to that, I'll say I think their team's gotten deeper. Um, I like some of the, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute. I like how they maximize their minimum contract slots. I really think they did a good job of that. But a lot of it really is going to come down to number one, what happens with the DeAndre Ayton piece, as he's probably he's their best trade asset right now. Um, do they keep him? Does do we see what we saw two years ago, which was the best version of Ayton? Uh, or do we get kind of what we've seen the rest of his career, which has been a mixed bag, to be honest with you? Um, that's a big X factor on this team. I think the big three is going to take care of things by itself most of the time, especially throughout the regular season. But the eight in piece is something that needs to be talked about. And then the way that they've you know, operated in free agency with those maximum contract slots, which is really all they had to work with, because of the contracts that they have on this roster, um, it stands out to me because usually when you see teams that have that are very top heavy in terms of the way that they allocate their cap space in years past, you kind of see them tend to fill out their rosters with older, you know, decrypt veterans who have been around the league and are typically over the age of 30 and might not fit the best, but sometimes you can, if you're in the right situation, you can get the most out of them. But I think this situation, it stands out to me because aside from Aaron Gordon, who's 34 years old, and I think we'll give them, some things come playoff time with his experience and the floor spacing that he can provide. I think they got him at a really good value at the 3.2 million based on his market value and what he was expected to get. But I think they got guys who have actually played in NBA rotations and can give them some valuable minutes off the bench. Um, 
Kata Bates Diop is a guy I've watched in San Antonio for the past couple of years develop. 6'8, he's a crafty stretch power forward, can shoot threes well enough to keep defenses honest, and he can guard multiple positions. I, I really like that signing. Drew Eubanks, we've talked about the backup center position on this team for a while now. Um, I think he's an absolutely adequate backup center in what was a relatively weak backup center market. He can provide them some rim protection off the bench. Uh, Utah Watanabe, I believe is how you say his name. Yeah. Uh, he's a guy who shot 44% on threes last year in Brooklyn and can give you some four spacing and, you know, some other things. And then Josh Okoge is one of those guys who you bring in for defense and energy uh, and can be played in some of these lineups because of all the shooters that you have. I'm not saying that these moves elevate Phoenix to championship or above Denver. I don't think it does. I have to see how this plays out, especially with this core and the DeAndre Ayton situation. But, or this core of, I guess, role players, you would say, that they brought in in free agency. And the DeAndre Ayton situation is fairly important in my point of view. But I do think they're a deeper team with a little more versatility. Um, and I think you can say that at least they've addressed the amount of depth that they have and elevated their ceiling, I guess, from an offensive perspective. The defense is still relatively a question mark, but now you sort of turn your attention to what happens at the trade deadline or between now and then in helping this team get a perimeter defender or two to address the defensive situation. But I think they did a relatively good job of building out this roster around what they had to work with. And I think the Bradley Beal trade will work out from an offensive standpoint, but there are a lot of other factors that are playing into Phoenix's success this season in terms of competing with Denver or on that level. Right. And in all honesty, I I knew about the Eric Gordon signing and the Drew Eubank signing, but I actually didn't know that they had signed Yuta Watanabe. That's a really good fit for them. Um, a great shooter and a very underrated defender. I think that's one of those guys that maybe KD had vouched for. Um maybe from a son's perspective, having played, having played with him in Brooklyn. Yeah. He was a guy who was in the rotation early in the year with Brooklyn and fell out of the rotation just because of all of the wings that they brought in from both of those star player trades that they had. So that's a great signing. I think he'll be really good for them. Yeah. I like that signing. And I also really like the Kata Bates Diop. Signing, I think he's a guy who's going to play a role, a significant role on this team um, and can give them a lot of things that I mentioned. And then, of course, you have Eric Gordon, which doesn't hurt. And I think the best thing about all of this is you got these guys at outstanding value for what you had what to they work are. with. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's only upside with most of these guys. Um, and I think – 
overall, I think Phoenix is a better team in the sense that they're a little deeper and their bench is better. But I still don't know within the landscape of the Western Conference where exactly they stack up. I'm certainly not quite putting them up there with the Denver Nuggets right now. Um, But I do think as a basketball roster on paper, you can make an argument that they are a better team right now. Now, does that mean they're going to achieve greater things this upcoming season? I don't know. I, I just don't know. But from my point of view, I like a lot of things that they've done with the situation that they have. And it'll just depend on some other things that we've mentioned. It's really all right. I can say right now. Okay. So if that's all that needs to be said, thank you guys for, of course, tuning in to this episode. We needed to talk NBA. There's been a lot that's gone on and there will be more that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, but make sure that you like, and subscribe um, to our channel. I'm not sure why that's not show. There we go. Showing on the screen. And as Emmy said at at the start, we'll have more content coming in the coming weeks, whether that be NBA, NFL, college football, deep in the heart of Longhorns, et cetera, et cetera, golf, uh, the things that we do on the raw prospect podcast. So any parting shots? Um, well, eventually we're going to touch on the all NBA first team adjustments to that rule where positions aren't a part of it anymore. The, the best five players in the NBA are going to be on the all NBA first team, which is the way it's supposed to be in my opinion. And that's going to play a huge part in players legacies and all that with their resumes. So um, eventually we'll touch on that. But other than that, It was a great episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll let Michael sign us off. Just like the Damian Lillard era in Portland, we are going, going, gone. Peace out. Peace.